Imagine swimming 3.9 kilometers, then biking 180 kilometers, and then running a marathon. It may sound impossible or a task for superhumans. But people like you and me set up to do it, diligently train for months and months, and then do it. They run the Iron Man. And when they do, they push through physical pain, through mental blocks, and through thoughts of giving up. And crossing that finish line is their prize, bringing them feelings of exhilaration, accomplishment, and empowerment. When you embark on a master's or a PhD, you owe it to yourself to finish, to be empowered by what you learned and by what you accomplished, and to come out stronger for whichever life project you choose to embrace. In this episode, Fiona Robinson will share her insights on pushing through and on finding a fulfilling professional life outside of academia. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know that I've prepared for you a resource sheet to help you take a snapshot of your current situation and start defining your profile for the job market in your areas of interest. You can download it by visiting papaphd.com and following the instructions in the website footer. Welcome to the show. So today, I'll be talking with Fiona Robinson. Following a PhD in RNA biochemistry at Cambridge University, and postdoc in developmental neurobiology and oncology at the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children, Fiona moved to Montreal and shifted careers into science communications and medical education. Currently, Fiona is the educational materials manager in a mid-size international medical not-for-profit, a lead volunteer in the local women's hockey community, and half an Ironman. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Uh, now I'll let you tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So when you contacted me and asked me to talk a little bit about um, maybe my career progression from graduate studies to what I do now, I was very enthusiastic to do so because I remember you know, going through some phases where I really had no idea what direction to go in and didn't feel very confident. And I have to say that I've kind of landed somewhere where I am actually really very happy. And I would like people to know that, you know, that's a, a very probable outcome. Um, when I was doing my research, working as a PhD student and as a postdoc and, and even as a research associate, I really did enjoy the bench work. Um, I enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed the writing part of it. I found myself often helping other people with their communications uh, in the lab editing theses and papers or helping students to prepare for their committee meetings. But I didn't see a long-term future for me in research, really. And I was sort of disappointed because it's what I'd wanted to do for a long time. And I did stick at it for quite a long time. But I also found that I was finding a lot more fulfillment in some of the things that I was doing outside of the lab. And just because I'm, I'm naturally somebody who looks to settle into a community when I move, and I moved around quite a bit during my studies, Every time I went to a new city, I would, I would do two things. I would find a hockey team to play on, 
and I would go to the volunteer center and find somewhere to volunteer. And those two things ended up really being, I think, key to the direction I ended up taking. Because a lot of the volunteer things that I did were around science communication and medical education, and not even necessarily by design. Those were just the opportunities that left out at me when I would go to those volunteer centers. I joined a, an HIV AIDS education group in Cambridge and uh, soon found myself giving classes in the high school around, about viruses. And I joined a group called uh, SciHi in Toronto that did hands-on demonstrations of science to either schools or community groups. And I started volunteering also as an editor on a journal called Hypothesis, which was a, an open access um, online journal that had been started by a group of graduate students. And so I just found myself often going in the same direction and really enjoying that work. And when I moved to Montreal, and my partner and I moved to Montreal for personal reasons, I decided to just sort of as an experiment try continuing to look for research positions, but also looking for opportunities in the science communication medical education field, and just see which one opened up first. And it was it was the direction that I that I ended up going in. It was a science communication side of things, and I really built up a passion for wanting science and knowledge of science to serve society. And, you know, I think a lot of us do research because we want to serve society. We want the research results to benefit um, the public. We want, we want things to be better for people with a certain illness, or we want to improve outcomes in some area as a result of our research. And so I think there's a few ways that can happen. One is by advancing the research, but the other is by communicating it well to people and people understanding it. And that's where I felt that there was a, a lot of opportunity and a lot of breakdown where the headlines that you see in the papers don't always reflect the research that's being done. Mm. And uh, it ends up, I think, with a society that maybe doesn't feel really confident or familiar with science, and they don't always see it as a positive thing. And so I was always kind of interested in trying to impact that and uh, empower people with science. So while I was doing my PhD, I was, I was at Cambridge, and I was on a pretty small personal stipend. And so to make ends meet, I worked as a cleaning lady. So I would go to this lady's house for a couple of hours per week and clean her house. And she was a very smart lady. She had already a PhD in one field and was getting a second degree in another. But she hired me because she had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And she found that with all that, cleaning the house as well was too much. And I liked it because it was a chance to just switch my brain off and just do something manual. And quite often while I was writing my thesis, some of my best ideas of how to bring the data together came while I wasn't thinking about it. Um, <laughs> But so one evening, I was literally scrubbing the toilet, and she came to me with this package insert from her medication. And she said to me, can you understand this? Because tomorrow, I have to decide if I'm going to continue taking this drug or not, and I don't understand what this says. And it was, you know, the list of prescribing information and, and potential adverse events and that sort of thing. And I thought two things at that point. I thought, one, if her best resource at this point for that information is her cleaning lady, there's a problem with the system. Mm -hmm. She's not getting the information she needs. And the second thing I realized was that that's what I want to do. I want to use my ability to analyze information like that, research maybe some background around it, and use what's available to help patients make the right decisions for them. Um, I didn't know anything about multiple sclerosis at that time, particularly. I was, I was doing RNA splicing in my PhD, but I could find out what she needed to know to understand what she was trying to read. 
and to make the decision that was best for her. And so it was sort of in that moment with the toilet brush in hand that I was like, this is what I want to do. I had no <laughs> idea what that looked like. I'd had, I had no idea if that even existed. You know, I was like, is there such a job? Is it? And it took me 10 years to find that position. Wow. I finished my PhD. I went on and did a postdoc because I did like the research. I, I went from that on to being a research associate. But it had, that had really sparked in me something that, you know, I felt like there was something else that I could do with this with the abilities I developed as a researcher. And in fact, uh, I came in, when we came to Montreal, I started working in medical education and I worked in a couple of different positions. And when I saw the description for the job that I do now, I would lit up as this is my job. That's what I've been looking for for the last 10 years. And, uh, and I applied for it and I went for the interview and it was sort of funny in the interview, they were saying, do you have any questions? And I said, not really, but it's not because I don't want to know. It's because I do know. I know this is the job that I want. And they, they said that was quite convincing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good. But it, and it's, it's, it's quite amazing because, you know, I, I think maybe that's an important takeaway is that uh, you don't have to know exactly what your job looks like or what it is or what its title is. You have to kind of know what your passion is, what you'd like to be able to do, what you feel like you can do. And then you start looking around for it. And you, you may not get to it directly. I think in academia, we kind of get used to a very linear progression. You do your bachelor's and then you do your graduate and then you do your postgraduate. And then you, you know, it's very kind of linear and it's unidirectional and it's pretty much predefined. If you step out of that, you have to embrace a certain amount of uncertainty. You don't know necessarily where you're going. But in some ways, that's liberating. So, for example, your first job out of academia is very unlikely to be your lifetime job if such a thing even exists anymore. You know, not outside of academia, not that many people start a job when they finish their education and stay in it for the rest of their career. There's a lot of changes in direction and focus and, you know, maybe complete change of career. So when I came, my first job in um, outside of academia, it, I knew when I took it that I didn't want to do that forever. But it did give me some really good experience um, getting into the kind of science communication area and also showing employers that I could work in a non-academic environment because that's really important. Yeah. Um, non-academic employers can be quite reluctant to hire people who've been in academia for a while. They have some kind of impression that we're unsociable and not players and not necessarily manageable. and Bookish. Bookish and, and kind of stuck in the ivory tower and... Um, it's important to have something to show, something for them to take a look at and say, okay, I think this person has some social skills. I think this person could be part of a team. So that's where things like having played hockey um, in different places and being involved in various volunteer activities, it also showed them that I had a life outside of the lab work and that I was capable of working with other people and that I even had an inclination to do that. But those were things, again, that I, I did because I enjoyed them. But I think they ended up being a real positive in terms of, you know, showing a potential corporate employer or, or non-academic employer that I could be part of their team. And that you were a multifaceted person and potential employee. Yeah, for sure. I think that was important. It was also really important to me in terms of just being healthy as a whole individual during my studies. I tried going um, maybe one semester without playing hockey. And I realized that I didn't feel well at all. <laughs> I needed to play hockey. <laughs> you know, I only play at a very low level in a recreational league. But 
for me, it's, it's really important. It's where I find other women who are like me. You know, we play recreational hockey. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We have a good laugh. We do something 40. Um, that, that proved to be essential for me. So what I'm understanding here is that you, you, were, you always gave uh, importance, and tell me if I'm interpreting right, to having a balance between your work life, in, the, in this case, you know, study, be it PhD or postdoc, but also then extracurricular activities. But what I found very interesting uh, uh, is that I feel that you found this calling, which was to, to get scientific knowledge to everyone or as many people people as possible. But uh, what you did was uh, always find a way to nurture this, uh, this side of, of your interests with the volunteering. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to admit that I wasn't so good at the balancing earlier on. I mean, as an undergraduate, anyone who knew me as an undergraduate would probably say that I was far too, far too often in the library and not often, you know, out in the bars. Um, but that was something I had to kind of mature into, I think. And I got better at it as I went further through my studies. And I think it also became more necessary for me. Mm -hmm. um, up to a certain point, I was prepared to keep my head down and my nose to the bench and just keep working for that academic career. But also over time, I just realized that I didn't, it wasn't doing it for me. Um, and so branching out, getting out and volunteering and, and doing other things just became essential for me. And uh, like I said, in, in, in a number of cases, that was more fulfilling than what was going on in the lab for me. Even though I liked the bench research and I liked, I liked the research, it just, it was very hard to see a long-term future in it. It became clear to me reasonably early on that I wasn't likely to become a professor. And so then any kind of sort of long-term stability, it, it was hard to see how that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. So, so in, given that you had this uh you know that that you felt that uh the, the academic path was not going to be fulfilling for you uh long term how did that impact you know your your graduate uh, milestones like writing up your phd or going through your postdoc did you did it pose obstacles was it was it easy for you to you know to finish each chapter let's say of this of your graduate and postgraduate studies how did this uh, knowledge that you wanted to follow something else impact, you know, the, the, the final stages mm -hmm. of, let's say, your PhD and, and even your postdoc? So I have to say that I was in the final year of my PhD for at least 18 months. So that was, I think that might be an experience other people have as well, where... Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it takes a while to finish, and it's not, it's not the most fun time. It's stressful, and, and you wonder how you're going to get through it. I was pretty motivated to finish because, I mean, I, I did like the research. I loved writing. So I actually am one of those weirdos who enjoyed writing their pieces. Um, you know, there was a very high time pressure on, so that was kind of less pleasant. But I really, when I could actually just sit and write, I liked doing that. And I was very motivated. I knew I wanted to postdoc, so I was very motivated to, to finish up and go on and postdoc. Okay, But it was more during my postdoc that I kind of lost steam because I just didn't see it going anywhere really promising. And that was when I had to really think hard about what to do. And unfortunately, I think also in academia, there's not a lot of mentoring around that kind of reflection. Yeah. And so I was very lucky to have a good friend. Uh, we actually did our PhDs both in Cambridge and then ended up both 
both postdocing at Sick Kids in Toronto, and uh, Mariana Vargas Caballero, and she would sit with me, and we would have these long chats over lunch. And you know, she knew what she wanted to do. Uh, she really she wanted to do the research. She she is doing research now. She's very successful, does really good research, and she's managed to balance it out. She's got a beautiful family, and but she really helped me to realize that we're responsible for our own happiness. No one is going to come along and figure these things out for you, and, and it's nobody's job to do so. I think sometimes we feel like we've just got to suffer through things when we're in academia, and somehow there's merit in that. And in fact, there's not really. You, you get one shot at life. If you're not enjoying it, it's nobody's problem but your own. And the opportunity and the responsibility to do anything about it is also uniquely your own. And you know, she really helped me to reflect on that. And I, it was sort of funny because she did not encourage me to leave academia, not at all. But she helped me to see that that's what I wanted to do. And so, you know, she kind of really helped me to start looking for those other opportunities. And it started with, instead of doing a second postdoc, because you can just go on forever with the postdocs, becoming a research associate instead. And that gave me an opportunity to be in a slightly different position in the lab. I really enjoyed that. And I would have, if when we came to Montreal, if an opportunity like that would have worked out for me, I would have taken it and gone on in that direction, I think. Uh, but it happened that funding schemes changed right about the time I came to Montreal. And a couple of labs that wanted to hire me due to administrative rules couldn't because they couldn't put that kind of money to a research associate. Okay. And so, I, you know, it kind of just circumstances conspired that the opportunity to work uh, my first position outside of academia was working to create public education posters that you'd see sometimes in pharmacies and doctors' waiting areas. And they're sponsored by a pharma company, but they're strictly educational. There's no promotion to them because they know that the more certain conditions are diagnosed, the more of their particular product will be prescribed. So that was, that was a great opportunity for me because it gave me a chance to just change completely, go into the office environment, work in a team, work for a, a non-academic employer, work mm -hmm. with budgets, timelines, clients. Um, and they were interested in me because I had worked with science education outside of the lab. All those things I had done outside of the lab just because I was interested, they got me in the door for an interview. Wow. Now, I also should mention that it took about a year to get that. So I started looking for work in January. I'm still in Toronto. We moved to Montreal in the summer. And in the fall, I was looking 100%. I was all of my time was spent looking for, for a job. And it was December before I got a job. Okay, wow. And that was rough. That was really hard. You look at yourself and you think, you know, I've, I've got a PhD. I'm a pretty smart person. I've got all kinds of skills. And I can't even get an interview. It was pretty demoralizing. Um, but it was worth it because, you know, the first interview that I got, I got the job. And it was a fantastic opportunity to learn all of those things and prove that I could do all of those things. I, and I stayed there for less than a year. Within a year, I had kind of gotten what I could out of the job. But I also now had a CV that showed that I could do this kind of work. And it so happened that my goalie in my hockey team was working for a company that was doing something similar, but on a much more advanced level. And okay. so when I went to them with my CV via her, which really helped to have that connection, they looked at what I was doing, but they also looked back at my previous work. I remember sitting in the interview for that position and they said, oh, 
wait, you've edited a journal, which mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. something I'd done as a volunteer. Well, that's interesting. And maybe we should bring you on as a junior editor then. And so that was what gave me an opportunity to go, again, a little further, do things that were more challenging, pick up more skills, really develop, rather than just making sort of short posters for display, I was learning how to make e-learning modules and interactive PDFs and on-site, in-person training workshops. And Cool. So that was fantastic. That really expanded my repertoire of what, what I could manage. Um, because a big part of that kind of work as well is actually project management. I mean, officially, I was a medical editor, but you're also managing a lot of the project. And you're working with an entire team of writers and graphic artists and uh, coordinators. And so that whole side of it, it's a whole lot of social skills and organizational skills. And while I think you develop at least the organizational skills in the lab, again, showing that you've got those social skills, they often come outside of the lab. And that's something else that I think it's, it's worth thinking about, because when we're in the lab, we tend to think that we, we only know the kind of information that we know, and we forget about all the other things that we develop as researchers. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. But I, I think, for me, research, the, the thing that I've seen that I, that I think is the biggest transferable skill out of research is the ability to take a big problem, a big question, break it down into smaller parts, and evaluate those. What do I need to tackle each of those? How can I do it? Who do I need? What's the timeline on that? Do yep. they have to be done in a certain order? Execute them, and then bring them back together into one big thing. That's what yeah, yeah. it is, right? That's also event planning. That's also if you want to take a, an idea and build it up to a publication, um, developing a product and launching it, like anything like that. Those are definitely the skills you need. And the, the management consulting companies in the UK used to come and recruit from the life science PhD programs at Cambridge at Oxford. And we would okay. always say to them, but why? Like, we don't have any business knowledge. And they said, well, you're literate, you're numerate, and you can do problem-solving critical thinking. That's what we need. We can teach you the rest. And I think that's the case for so much of research. We have all of those skills, and, it, and, and it's not everybody who has, you know, really refined those skills. So if you find exactly. something else you're interested in and you start applying that kind of rigorous method to it, you probably find that you're pretty good at it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and in in long term, you know, in projects that could take, you know, years. A PhD, a master's could be two years, but a PhD can be six, seven. Yeah. And uh, and so you know, the, there's you you're not you're not going to be um, intimidated by you know regular uh, I don't know six month projects uh, at at whichever uh, at whichever job that you're working at. So Fiona, yeah, I I agree with with everything you're saying. Uh, we, you know, you come out of a, of grad school and uh, even uh, of a postdoc with with uh, a huge amount of uh, of stamina, you know, uh, and uh, um, resilience to to take on you know, very very challenging projects. And uh, and this is often very interesting, uh, an interesting uh, set of skills for employers. Uh, the, for employers that are, you know, looking for um, candidates with the the profile of, of either masters or PhD uh, graduates, um, now um, you seem to, you know, you 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 kind of told, uh, or or you've got, you've kind of gone over a whole arc of of uh, of your story 
from uh, from undergrad to grad school um you've talked about um the importance sports uh, had and specifically hockey had um keeping you uh, sane <laughs> and healthy throughout uh, same thing with um volunteering and finding ways to give back to the community uh and and i, I find it very very uh, important giving back is is to me one of the the most uh effective ways to to get back to 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 recharge uh uh your your uh, almost your spiritual batteries i don't know if you if you would agree yeah for sure definitely and it seems to me that throughout uh, all of this you've always kept a, a positive attitude and this uh, links to my next question which is What main attitude or principle would you say has accompanied and guided you from from that turning point of that aha moment of of knowing what you wanted to do later on to today and and uh, how has this attitude impacted uh, your life uh, up till today That's that's a good question and I think I would not have been able to put my finger on it at the time but looking back I think it's It's a combination of maybe two things. One is that realization that it's really up to you to be responsible for your own happiness. That that's really something that you know, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, we can't control the things that are around us or the circumstances that we're in. But we also can't just sit back and say, "Well, I'm unhappy with this and you know, someone else should do something about it." it no one will. It's really up to us. We have the responsibility. We also have the opportunity the freedom to do something about it and i think it it's sort of that combined with like you say we we learn when we do research or maybe we're drawn to research because we naturally do work really hard at things that sometimes only progress incrementally and you know we have that stamina to stick with things and i think that that's that's really valuable you know i'm on the one hand i'm saying i really see the value in, in seeing if you're not happy in something and, and looking for ways to move on but at the same time that idea that you work hard at something and and sometimes it isn't easy going but you know that it's going towards something that that is going to be rewarding or that you believe in i think that's one of the driving forces that that keeps us going and um the other thing that i am very involved in here in montreal is volunteering with the women's hockey organization community and there i have the opportunity to work with some of the best female hockey players in the world some of the the olympic stars and i kind of i've always been a geek i've never been a sporty person i play hockey but at the lowest possible level and i kind of assumed that these women were just naturally really good at hockey and they are but they work so hard working with them i've had the opportunity to see that same commitment that we apply in research they're applying to improving their skills in hockey whether it's in the gym or on the ice or in off ice training or in video review they are just working so hard and demanding so much of themselves and i think that really that really inspires me i see them going for excellence and 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 pushing themselves in order to to achieve excellence but still enjoying it it's still it's the thing that they love i mean they barely get paid anything so they really are doing it for the love of the game and and that inspired me as well to seek opportunities to live that myself so the work that i do now you know i could probably make a lot more money working um, in a pharmaceutical company but i would not get the same joy out of what i do as i do now 
And sometimes there are frustrations that go along with that. You don't have the same resources or maybe there's politics. There's politics everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I get so much joy out of seeing that the work I do is actually bettering the lives of, of some people with, in this case, bleeding disorders. Uh, I meet them sometimes. I see them using the resources that I've created and, and developed with the, mm -hmm. with the other volunteers at the organization. Sorry, with the help of the volunteers of, of the organization. And it's just so rewarding that it's worth the work that you put into it. And it's worth holding oneself to a very high standard to make sure that, that we're producing really, really good materials. Um, and I think that, that it's a combination of that drive for excellence, but that patience and that maturity that you know that you have to break things down into smaller, smaller components and you have to work through them with the resources you have available to do the best that you can. And I think that's something that you can apply to any any area of interest, any kind of work. Yeah, and uh, just going back a little bit uh, to to finishing, you know, some some of our listeners may be finishing or or um, maybe uh, trying to decide whether they'll write up their master's thesis instead of going to the PhD, um, and you know that that last stretch may be challenging and um you told me off the mic about uh, one of your latest uh, um, sports uh, exploits and i feel that it aligns pretty well with what our listeners can be uh, experiencing right now you know what i'm talking about i do yeah for sure <laughs> it's funny i think yeah yeah it's an interesting parallel to draw um so as i alluded to in my biography i'm very recently a half iron man in that I completed the half Ironman at uh, Mont Tremblant in June of this year. And for me, that was a huge challenge. I'm not an actually athletic person. I've done a couple of smaller triathlons, but nothing like it. And when I signed up for it about a year ago, I was physically incapable of 1,900 meters and then biking 90 kilometers in the hills of Mont Tremblant and then yeah. running a half marathon, 21.1. Oh, that's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> it, it, it was pretty daunting. I signed up for it thinking, Oh my God, <laughs> how am I going to do this? But it was great to have the focus and the challenge and, you know, to apply kind of that similar mindset of, I really want to do this. And, mm -hmm. I, and I guess maybe that's the biggest parallel to getting through that versus getting through completing your degree. I want to do it for me. That was my big motivation. I wanted to do it for me. I knew I wasn't going to beat much of anybody. I wasn't going to try and make a podium or, you know, be finish it. I just wanted to do it for me. It's not, it doesn't get me anything, right? Having, having done a half Ironman is not a, a qualifying skill for, for really anything. <laughs> but it, I just wanted to set myself a goal that was outside of my current limit and do it. And, and it was challenging and it was sometimes extremely, you know, it's uh, 30 below and you're going for a run on Montréal. It's Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't the most tempting thing to do. But it actually, every little achievement along the way, you know, every little run done, every swim done, every biking done, it was just, it was a little reward all along the way. And the camaraderie of the group that I was training with, a fantastic triathlon club here in Montreal called The Chicken, who are <laughs> so encouraging. And, uh, and then to do it on the day, you know, it took me seven hours. It's quite a long wow. time. Seven hours. was better than I was expecting. I was worried I wouldn't be able to do it within eight. And, uh, you know, the last couple of kilometers, I felt like throwing up. 
But at the same time, it was just so exhilarating to be like, I can, I can do this. I'm going to have done this. And so at that point, and I think that is similar to when you're writing up at the end, you know, you just got to get through it. You just kind of owe it to yourself just to get through it. You've worked so hard. You've put in so many difficult hours and you've often given up all kinds of things to get yourself there. So no matter what anyone else thinks, no matter what anyone else, you know, is encouraging you to do or not to do for yourself, you need to finish that thing. And then you've got it forever. You can always say, I did that. And, you know, I think a master's or a PhD, it's going to make a difference. It's going to give you an opportunity on your CV and your future career opportunities that a half iron man won't. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it doesn't magically open doors, but it, it, I think in both cases, you kind of made a deal with yourself. You're kind of, you're kind of also telling yourself that, you know, this is all worth it. Like I've done something and I can be proud of it. And I think that's also just an important personal reckoning that I did this yeah, for me yeah. and I did it and it's done. Um, and then you can decide to, to move on to other things if you want to. And that PhD or master's on your CV, even if it doesn't, if you, you know, you may not get a job in something that's directly related to it, but smart employers will recognize the, the discipline and the effort that it took and the intelligence that it took to get that degree, regardless of the topic. That's always going to be a good, a good set of qualifications to have. And tell me if you agree, I, I have a feeling that even psychologically, the fact of finishing, be it the PhD or the half Ironman, the fact that you, that you finished allows you to consider going further the next time. It's kind of um, uh, a boost to your ego almost. I finished. Yeah. Now, now this is behind me and I can move further and, and go higher. Oh, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, prior to doing the half Ironman, I did a marathon. And two years before that, I would have said, I could never run a marathon. I couldn't do that. And then <laughs> I decided I wanted to do it. And I trained for it. And I did it very slowly, but I did it. And then after that, I thought, well, what else could I do? And <laughs> I started thinking about, you know, the half Ironman. And That's when awesome. I signed up for it again, I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I could do that. But I did it. And so then you, you, you kind of get in the habit of breaking your limits, of pushing past your limits. And that is incredibly empowering. And it translates to, I think, your office work or, or whatever else you're doing. I don't think that it's any coincidence. Well, okay, it's maybe a coincidence, but I think it's related that, you know, when I started to, to push myself to really get more fit and to take on these sorts of challenges, that's also when I started moving towards the job that I have now that I, that I really enjoy okay. more than the other jobs I had out of research. I think that when they came, when this job came along, I had the confidence in myself to go for it, partly because I had already taken on other things that I thought might be outside of my abilities or outside of my limits and achieved them. So I thought, well, why not? I can go for this as well. And I, I think it really does impact your overall confidence and self-esteem. And those are also things that are really, they're really transferable. They make you a much easier person to work with if you can feel confident about yourself and yeah, you're not constantly seeking validation or doubting yourself and, and kind of, you know, putting that onto other people. And I think you can, you're easier to work with and you're, and you're maybe better at your job when you can come with more positivity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good point. And uh, what I'm taking from what you're saying is, first, uh, even if you want to leave the, the academic uh, career path, having a master's or a PhD on your CV is is not going to be discounted by by uh, whoever is going to be interviewing you for jobs. It, it counts. Uh, it, it's not lost time. Second, uh, I'm getting also this... Uh, this feeling that, you know, if you're if you're at the end, if you're, uh, you know, one year to to uh, to your defense, just take the energy that you have, put it all into your resilience, and finish because it's going to be hard. But what you're going to take home from it is going to be exponentially more. I think so. I think that. I think that again. I think you owe it to yourself, and it's got to be for yourself. It can't be for anybody else because someone else is obliging you to do it or you feel like you owe it to someone else. You owe it to yourself. And I think that's kind of the, the biggest motivator to get through something like that is, is that you're doing it for yourself. I, I, it's true that I think some employers are intimidated by some higher studies. I've known people to take the PhD off their CV because they think it improves their employability. I don't know about that. I, I don't know. I, I have been in situations where I think that my PhD has made people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of too bad. I do believe though, so for example, the job that I have now, you don't need a PhD. On paper, you do not need a PhD or think even a master's to get the job. However, I think I do a much better job of it because of the, the higher studies that I've done. And not just because of the knowledge that I gained about you know biology. But because of all those other skills, all the, that critical thinking and the and the project management, all of those skills, I think those are probably at least as important as the scientific knowledge I picked up along the way. So, you know, whether every employer is going to be delighted to see it or not on your CV, you as an individual are better able to succeed at whatever you take on because of the skills that you pick up while you're doing your graduate study. And if you're close to finishing, I really think you owe it to yourself to finish. And then to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. And I guess, like you were talking about your interview for your current position, I guess also uh, if you manage to to get an interview or even an informal meeting with someone at a uh, an employer that you really want to work for, you're going to be, you know, you, if you're well prepared, you're going to be able to convince them and to show them that you are not just your PhD. Yeah. And and uh, and I I felt that that's something that happened in your interview process. For sure, for sure. And I think even from the first interview that I got outside of academia, I think from that that first that first time that I was able to present myself in person, you could see the difference. Like I I've been sending CVs out and not getting interviews, but when I managed to get in for an interview, I got straight into the job. And yeah, you know, yeah. I, so much of it is about showing who you are and and what your what your personal motivation is, your enthusiasm for what you, what you want to do there. And that it should come through in your CV and in your letter. So for example, if I apply for a position somewhere, I will take my CV and I will customize it to that position. So it's got all the same basic content in it, but I might change up the headings or I might change the order. I might reword the objective. And the cover letter as well should be absolutely tailor written mm-hmm. to the position saying why why you are the one for that job, why you want to do that job. And it should, you know, 
I think we kind of think people will read our CV and see all these things that are so obviously relevant to their position. No, people who are doing the first reading of CVs, they have so little time for CV, they see almost nothing. You want to put in that cover letter, I am good for this job because I've done this, this, and this, and I want to do this job because I'm personally motivated by this, 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 this. That's a very important point. If, if you hope people are going to discover that for themselves in your CV, you know, you're asking too much. You've got to really put it up there. And the, it doesn't take a lot to do that, but it's worth it. And then if you get the chance to meet them in person and talk to them, you, you bring all your enthusiasm and your personal ability and you show it. And that, that goes a long way. That goes further than, you know, under underlying knowledge. So we're talking about promoting yourself. Uh, did you have access to services uh, at university that helped you uh, tailor your CV, prepare for interviews, or was this something that that you had to to go about uh, on your own? I was actually really lucky in a way. I did a co-op undergraduate degree back when they were not actually that common. I went to the University of Guelph and I studied biochemistry in their co-op education program. And that meant that after the first year or so of studies, every second semester, I worked full-time somewhere. And so we got coached in preparing our CVs for that. We had wow. So I had a job with Mark Frost here in Montreal. I had a job with Bollringer Ingelheim, who were at the time uh, at Biomega in Laval. And so that gave me also a, an exposure to working outside of the academic environment. But also, the, I had got a chance to work on a CV, go through interviews. They had this horrible thing that they did, which was was a really good idea. It was just awful, mortifying to do, where they videotape you doing a mock interview, and then you have to watch yourself. It's awful. Uh, yeah. I've been through something like that too, and it's awkward, but it's, it is useful. But it's really helpful, yeah. It's really, really helpful. So I think that that, that helped, and that was, that was a long time ago in my undergraduate. There, there wasn't so much of that at, in, during graduate school, and I think that's, I, I think I've, I've said it before, that it, during your graduate studies, you're not really encouraged to consider things other than that academic route. I mean, even during my PhD, I was part of a small group of students that organized seminars. I think it was every Friday afternoon or every couple of Friday afternoons, we'd have somebody speak. And usually it was a student speaking about their research so that we, we would get better at doing that. But then every once in a while, we'd bring in someone who'd done a life sciences PhD and who was doing something different now. And it was super interesting. We had one lady who was um, an advisor to a law firm. So huh. if the law firm was involved in litigation around a drug, she could advise them about the whole biochemistry side of how the drug worked. Um, so we had all these different people who'd come in and speak like that. And I got labeled in the department as not being very serious about my research because I was organizing these things. Even though I was committed to going and doing a postdoc and at the time you know, thought I wanted to be a professor, just the fact that I showed an interest and, and kind of helped to provide opportunities for other people to explore those possibilities. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. That was frowned upon. And I think that's yeah. really unfortunate because, I mean, you all know the pyramid of the academic system. All of these people coming through as PhDs and postdocs are not all going to become professors. No. And no. many aren't suited to it. And many have got so many skills and would be so good in so many other things. We should encourage that exploration. And I think that the, for some reason, that doesn't happen very much. Yeah, you were like Papa PhD before Papa PhD. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> very cool. The good news is that there are, there are now, uh, I'm thinking uh, of McGill, for example, there's a careers and placement center 
where there are people that are dedicated to helping you find you your way. Uh, you have CV tailoring workshops. Uh, there's career fairs that are organized now and then. So I think, you know, maybe it depends on where you are, but uh, for sure these resources exist and people can uh, at the university find help transitioning. That's fantastic. And I think, it, I think it's great that that's happening. And I hope that people feel comfortable to do so. Because again, it's, it's up to you. You've got to go looking for yourself. You've got to go see what interests you. The other thing that I did late during my PhD, and I do it every once in a while when I start to feel restless, is I look at job postings that are out there, not with the intention of applying for them, but just kind of either physically or digitally kind of scrapbooking them. You know, just cut it out, put it in an envelope if it looks vaguely interesting. And then at some point, pull them out and look at them and say, well, what have I collected? Because honestly, a lot of the time you think, well, maybe I don't want to do research, but I don't know what I want to do. But if you just, and, and it's a lot of pressure to think, well, I've got to pick now. I'm going to go in this direction. But if you just kind of, every time you see something that looks kind of interesting, just, just snag it, put it in an envelope somewhere, and then pull them out at some point and be like, okay, have I got a concentration of something? And so I was kind of doing that. And I think then also the volunteering was my, my other way of doing that without even realizing that's what I was doing. And then you start to see, you start to see the things that are drawing you. And, you know, I, I, there was a colleague that I had when I was doing my PhD who he was really involved in organizing the May Ball. Okay. That's a Cambridge tradition because in, I think in May, everyone is so busy with exams, you basically miss the month of May, which is beautiful in England, which is, you know, it's one of the really lovely months. So in June, you have a May Ball, which is just, kind of make up for having this entire month. You finished your exams and so you just party all night. You start at about 7 p.m. and you party until sort of breakfast. And it's, you know, full on Cambridge. So you're in your tuxes and gowns and there's champagne and it's (laughs) the the whole thing. There's fireworks. So it's a massive event. And so he was really involved in organizing that with some people in his college. And I remember the his supervisor saying something about him pursuing his alternate career in event management. (laughs) <laughs> and it was kind of said kind of half as a joke kind of not and and i to be honest i'm not even sure what he went on to do uh, as a career he could have done anything he wanted i think um but that that kind of came back to me but i was thinking about this like yeah the skills we use in the lab to do our research they're so transferable to things like running events and anything where you've got to organize a lot of things a lot of components and if you look at what you're doing in your spare time or what you wish you were doing in your spare time, you may very well find something that you could pursue as a career and you could start to dabble in maybe as a volunteer or getting involved in some societies or organizations. You also start to make contacts that way. They can write reference letters for you. When I apply to the job that I have now, where I'm working for a not-for-profit, one of my key letters of reference came from the GM of Les Canadiens de Montréal, the women's hockey team. Okay. They're part of the CW. HL, which is a not-for-profit league, and I spent nine years volunteering for them with increasing amounts of responsibility and a big team of volunteers under me. And so I could go to this organization and say, I've worked for a not-for-profit. I know what it is to follow the mission mm-hmm. of a not-for-profit. I know the culture. I know. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. and to work with teams of volunteers. That's a very particular set of skills. And not only do I have those skills, I have someone who will tell you, someone who's in a position of recognized authority, who will tell you that I'm good at this. So, you know, it started out as something I was doing just because I liked hockey, but it ended up being actually really important to the advancement of my career 
to where I am now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, and if if we go back to university, grad school, and postdoc, do are there also people from that sphere that still today have uh, you know are somehow important in, in your network that uh, that that uh, had an impact on the job you have now, or is university and your current career are are they like two separate compartments? I don't think they have to be two separate compartments. I think in my case, they mostly are. Unfortunately, I didn't really have mentors within academia. And, and there was never really somebody that I felt really connected to and that I felt really cared about my outcome. Like I said, there was a, a fellow student at postdoc who was someone who really, really supported me and helped me and, the, and that I felt really comfortable with and who, who helped me to value my own happiness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was actually going to ask you about, uh, about that. So you talked about this person who helped you kind of reflect and then stop having the tunnel vision that that you know that's you may fall into when you're in the in the academic career track, let's say. Uh, but there was no one that was playing the role of of mentor that you could go and uh, like open your heart to about your doubts and uh, uh, your your questions at the time. No, unfortunately not. Uh, I have to say that really. Throughout my academic career, from undergraduate all the way through, there was there wasn't really somebody. I had a guidance counselor as an undergraduate who cared, I think, quite a bit. Um, eventually retired, but from graduate school on, you know, it, it, we were really just left to defend for ourselves. I think, and it was sort of hoped that he would figure things out. And yeah, I, I felt pretty uh, pretty much on my own in that respect and and even quite frustrated because sometimes I would go to these seminars about, you know, finding your way or, yeah. or and I, at the time I was really hoping to make it in, in academia and wanting to continue research. And, but they'd have somebody who got a nature paper in their masters or and the, and then went on to star in their PhD and then they got the top postdoc and off they went to become a professor. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's not really helping me because You know, the individuals who, who find themselves in that situation or who work themselves into that situation, however you want to look at it, I think they're getting a lot of guidance and mentorship from their professors because professors love these superstars and doors are open for them and they're getting lots of encouragement. It's the people like me who didn't get the nature paper out of their PhD, you know, didn't have that obvious stellar pathway. I think sometimes we just get left to our own devices. <laughs> Which is unfortunate. I mean, you know, graduate studies are still in education. They're not just a data generation vehicle for your pro professor. And sometimes I feel like that gets a bit neglected. Just as I don't think the ability of the students to communicate their science is adequate, adequately taught. I've edited people's theses for them and they're terribly written and nobody cares. Nobody's really teaching them to write. And if you think about it, you spend however many years with your nose to the bench doing research. And then you're suddenly supposed to be able to write about it coherently. It's not, they're not the same skills. And I don't know, maybe things have changed because it was a little while ago that I did this, but I didn't get any instruction in that. I happened to love writing. And so I took to it really well. And then I enjoyed helping other people to improve their skills at it. But nobody, like I kind of stepped up to do that for the more junior members of my lab, but nobody had that responsibility and nobody was making sure that those students were getting that help. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, you and I know how how that life is hard, and and uh, and I have some admiration, you know, for people who are doing research every day and and discovering things that help uh, humanity. Let's say, um, but um, all that pressure to publish. The thing about uh, about uh, principal investigators to do administrative tasks. There's there's also I would say some you know some challenge on their part. And not all of them have, uh, you know, have, have all the skills or resources to then also uh, mm. play the mentor role to their to their uh, underlings. And to be fair, I don't know how much um, help they get developing those skills. I exactly, mean, exactly. Some, and but if you think about the skills that it takes to get those fantastic publications, which are kind of the primary requirement to get a professional a, a professor position. They're not the same skills that it takes to coach people who are, you know, maybe feeling demotivated or uh, lacking direction. And in fact, you might enrich the other way. The guy who's spending every Saturday night in the lab churning out great data may not actually have the best social skills. Exactly. But, you know, it's true. It's, it's, I think that it's a lot to ask of professors as well to have all of those skills. Definitely, definitely. There, there are, uh, depending on where people are studying, uh, there's systems, there's like uh, committees uh, that are part of, of some uh, PhD programs where the person gets in the, in the program and starts their, their PhD. And they have a committee that's composed of different uh, principal investigators from different labs. And, and I think that, you know, because the, the, the student is not faced only with their uh, supervisor, they have other people with whom they meet regularly. That's already a, a, a type of uh, a type of system that must help a lot. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that more and more institutions are recognizing the need for that and putting those sorts of things into place. And I think I think it's really positive, and I think that it's the right direction to go. I, I hope that that really continues, and uh, that what I'm describing is not recognizable to some of the people who'll hear this. <laughs> Yeah, and that there's uh, instead of less of less funding for science, that there's more and more, and that the, the pressure goes down a little a little bit, so that um, people can more easily, uh, you know, go into science and thrive in science. Uh, and now we were talking about the academic setting. What about uh, in your current career, or or since you left academia, did you have mentors that helped you um, become who you are today professionally? Yeah, well, for sure. I think any time that you go into a new direction, you have to be, you, you will benefit from the attitude that you're going to learn from everybody that's around you. So, you know, when I first went into, first stepped out of academia into education communication, I was, I was learning from everybody. And I, I think I still am. And I think that's a good way to approach any kind of work. Um, I think in terms of like a, a more philosophical mentor, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go back to the hockey world, okay. <laughs> completely outside of the science and medical education. But I, I'm really inspired by the, the GM of Les Canadiens, Meg Hewings, and by Caroline Wallet, who was she was the captain of uh, Team Canada at Sochi, and she's a mm-hmm. you know multiple Olympian, a terrific person. The two of them, they both have such vision and such drive for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They'll rise above petty setbacks and frustration, and they will take on any challenge to move their vision forward. And they, they don't limit themselves. Uh, you know, they don't 
they don't stop at an obstacle. They, they just find creative solutions and, and keep moving things forward. It's a little bit different to, you know, that, that's not somebody who's necessarily showing you how to edit or showing you how to develop e-learning modules. But you can, you can learn those things from, from your colleagues and from various sources. But that attitude and that approach to things of believing in yourself and believing in what you're trying to do and then being prepared to do whatever, whatever you need to, find whatever creative solution you can. And, you know, to, to take the setbacks because like, women's hockey is an area where, where there is a lot of challenges. Yeah. And there are setbacks. And I mean, we've just seen our entire league disappear. And, and to take those setbacks and not let them get you down, like you, you live them, you mourn them, but you move on and you know you're confident that what you believe in is bigger than that. And you find ways to keep going and you believe that you've got something substantial to contribute. And you share that enthusiasm with others and, and move forward with them. Um, I think those two really inspire me to to do that in in all the areas of my life. Excellent. And uh, so I, I was going to ask you what the most important lesson was that you learned from your mentors. Uh, from from all you said, um, I feel that it's this uh, this power, this attitude of, of resilience. Is there another lesson that you can share that, that has really, uh, let's say, changed you and made you who you are today from, from your mentors? I think, it's, I think it's, like you say, the resilience and it's also that, that personal responsibility, that feeling of it's, it's my life. I'm the one living it. I'm responsible for making it something worth living. And of course, we all have doubts, but you can't let those doubts prevent you from from doing something worthwhile and going for it. I mean, the worst that will happen is that it doesn't work out. But if you don't try, you, you let yourself down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's that feeling, because I think I did feel for a while during my academic experience, like, oh, poor me, you know, I'm not happy. Well, no one else is going to do anything about that. And no one else should. It's up to you. It's up to me. And that's both heavy and liberating. And when you can feel it as, as a liberation, like, okay, do whatever I want. I can, it's up to me. Then it's kind of empowering as well. And that gives you a chance to, to take the direction that's going to, maybe it's going to be the right one. I mean, I think, I, yeah, I think it's, it's that feeling of you've got to be responsible for yourself. Mm-hmm. It means you hold yourself to account to yourself, but it also means you're free to go in the direction that makes sense to you. Yep. I totally agree with you. Um, you can kind of get lost in this habit of uh, self-pity, mm-hmm. but it's just it's just a break that's that's uh, preventing you from going forward and higher. Yeah, and the only person who's going to lose out from that is you. You know, you can say, "Oh, but I, I, this and this stacked up against me." And that's true, and you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that people don't have. People don't have um, difficult circumstances, for sure. And there are things that, you know, you can't get over. You can't. But you can, you can look at your own situation and look for your own strengths and your own opportunities and, and find a way to go for something that's your, that you believe is worthwhile. I guess that's the other thing that's, um, that's just always been super important to me is that I've got to feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of people who are in the starting out in research, 
they do it because they want to they want to contribute something they want to feel that what they're doing is worthwhile definitely and there, but there are lots of ways to do that research is not the only way to do that and that is very freeing as well there's lots of opportunities to take your abilities and contribute them to positively to society and and it, it's just a question of you know opening up to all the possibilities and and going looking for them and and not being afraid to look in unexpected directions. Yeah, take the the leap of faith. Yeah, or, or even, you know, sometimes before we leap, we have to just look up. We've got our eyes so close to the ground or so close to the vent. And if we don't know what else is out there, and there's all kinds of things out there. And I mean, for me, it, it was very much the case that I had no idea what I was looking for. I could not, 10 years ago, have named the position I have now. I knew what I wanted to do. I had no idea what that was. And it took years for it to appear. But just having become aware of that drive in me and that interest, then I started looking for it. And I started and I kind of researched different things and you know came across different ideas um, and started going in, in a couple of different directions. But I, I think you have to be also patient with yourself. Can't expect it to be something like you're going to wake up tomorrow and go. That's it. You're going to be a chef. Decided. You, you kind of, you know, give yourself a chance. Give yourself some time. Give yourself an opportunity to look at different things. Try maybe a few different things, and also to enjoy yourself along the way. I think um, I, I'm very much. I do very much believe in that. You work very hard and you make some sacrifices, and sometimes you go through some tough things for a long-term goal that is worth it. Yeah. But we have to be careful not to get so caught up in that that we don't enjoy now, because now is really all we've got. And you know, it's we work hard during our undergraduate so that we can get a good graduate position. We work hard during our graduate studies to get a good postdoc. And, but somewhere along the way, you've got to start enjoying yourself. And you know, when you realize that everybody else gets to enjoy themselves, why shouldn't you? So then. You've got to find your own opportunity to do that. Yeah, or else each time we hit a milestone, we just take the goalpost and put it 10 yards farther. Yeah, and that will go on forever, you know, and then you're going to try and get a junior position and then you're going to try to work towards tenure and nobody gets tenure these days anyway. Like if, you, if your happiness is contingent on achieving something like far away and everything you're doing to try to get there and you can't enjoy, that's, that's really not a good setup. Those are very, very wise words, uh, and uh, it's it's perfect because we're we're reaching the end of the of the interview, and I feel this uh, is setting a very good tone, and uh, and and I feel that it's you know very valuable and and very wise uh, advice to to our listeners. Um, today is all you have, uh, you know. It, you you live today, and you do live for tomorrow. But again, okay. like uh, you were saying, if you're putting the objective always farther, farther, farther away. You know, you may find it difficult to enjoy today and to thrive in your daily life. Yeah, and and you have you have the right to enjoy every day. And I think we can get so caught up in that. Oh, I've got to sacrifice now for later. That we kind of miss that. Enjoy. You can enjoy every day, and or you have a right to be happy. And I think during my postdoc, some of that time was really tough, and. I started it with just taking little moments and saying to myself, okay, in this moment, I am happy. And I'm actually walking home in the sunshine, and it was beautiful in that moment. 
But by identifying those moments and saying, right now, I'm happy. I kind of had little micro moments and then they expanded, it got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And as you're identifying the things that make you happy, then you seek them out more. And that helps you also maybe to, to shift your focus and see if, it's, if you are happy when you're in the lab and you're developing a film and you're seeing a result for the first time and that's making you super happy, that's telling you something. But yeah, if you're definitely. happy when you're out playing hockey or when you're editing a paper for a friend or when you're in the schools do you know purifying DNA from banana for the 600th time, <laughs> that's telling you something too. And you have to listen to yourself on that. Well, that, that's... Uh... That's going to be uh, the golden nugget for uh, for your show notes <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go to my last question, which is a little bit of wrap up of of all we've been talking about. You, you know, I didn't have to ask you a lot of questions. You covered a, a lot of the a lot of the points that I, that I usually like to to cover, uh, and 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 it was it was great. And uh, so the last question. Usually I say it's kind of a role play type thing where you're going to imagine yourself to be in a situation. And the situation is imagine that you're standing in front of an audience full of young, either finalists or, or young graduates, uh, people just like you when you finished your studies and uh, people who are struggling through fears, worries, doubts, and they're dealing with obstacles to find their place in the job market, to trace their journey towards a productive and fulfilling life. Looking at these people, What two or three basic strategies or principles could they follow starting today to put in place a realistic and attainable transition project from their academic life to their life in non-academic jobs? Wow, that's a big challenge. It's a big question. I think try and stick to two or three points. I think one is, is really what I've come back to quite a few times is That, that personal responsibility. It's your future and it's your life right now. It's up to you to be happy, to do things that make you happy and you deserve to be happy. You don't have to sacrifice your happiness for some greater good. You have every right to be happy. In terms of, that's kind of a philosophical um, kind of over, overriding <laughs> principle. <laughs> I think in terms of thinking that you'd kind of like to maybe try something outside of academia, I would encourage, if at all possible, to finish the degree you're working on because I think you'll feel good about it. I think it'll help you to put a good foot forward saying, well, I've done that. I've succeeded at that. That was something I could do. And I think that it has a lot of value. Whether employers recognize it or not, it does have a lot of value. I think it makes you a much more capable person. And I think you want to recognize what you're taking out of those degrees and what else you are as a person. So if you're doing research, I think that the two top things that, you're, that are transferable from that are your critical thinking skills and your ability to take a big project, break it into pieces, analyze those, get those done, tie them back together and, and bring them back to the whole. I think you can do that and, and pretty much anyone doing research is doing that. Then you can do anything you can you can take on any kind of challenge so then it's finding where do you want to put your energies what are you passionate about i know they say you know do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life well whatever <laughs> you still have to work it's not always fun and not everybody gets to work doing what they love but there's got to be something that you're doing or that you wish you could do that that draws you 
And I think you you kind of just need to let yourself start exploring that patiently, um, giving yourself some time. You don't have to make an immediate jump into your forever job. Kind of look around you, see what's out there without too much pressure on yourself. And you probably will find there's a direction you'd kind of like to go. Maybe you could get some initial experience as a volunteer or doing some kind of work with somebody on something that is maybe more like a hobby or more like a, an interest. And you may find that, that that kind of opens up into opportunities. And, and there you can apply your ability to take a big project, tear it down and, and get it done and build it back up again. So I would, I would like to encourage people who are maybe struggling towards the ends of their graduate studies to, to believe in themselves, to recognize they have a lot of skills, um, they're capable of a lot, and they have a right to do something that makes them really happy. Finish up those degrees, open up your eyes, look around, and start, start trying to feel your way out into something that you want to spend your time doing. Well, thank you very much, Fiona. It's been uh, great interviewing you. I, I think uh, you've given insights that, that uh, are, are going to be uh, inspiring to a lot of our listeners and uh, that are going to uh, maybe help them allow themselves to, to look up uh, and to, to see a bright future in front of them and, uh, and a future that, that will give them uh, fulfillment and, and happiness. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. I really do hope that there's that message is in there somewhere. I, I believe it is. And, uh, and I, thank you, uh, uh, I thank you again for having accepted my invitation. So thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.